Well, master, you were right about one thing. The negotiations were short. I have a bad feeling about this. (laughs) This is the 11 Days of Star Wars. Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by spending two weeks at Christmas lovingly analyzing all the highest highs and the rise of Skywalkeriest, the rise of Skywalkers of our favorite franchises. The rise of Skywalker equals. Yeah, I got, Do I need I got to, it. I, okay, all right. I'm your host, Sam, and with me is my co-host, Tessa. And joining us today is... An ellipsis. <laughs> we didn't fill in the notes. An ellipsis, indeed. <laughs> Hello, ellipsis. It's Matt. Hello. 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 This is me all trying the different ways my voice sounds slightly different this week because of, you know, health things. You know what? It was gonna, I am happy to be here, and I'm always happy to be here. And I think, was it, was it during the Sandwich Star Trek where, you know, we, I, we, I kind of committed to being here for this and was looking forward to it, and then I rewatched the movie having seen all the other movies I've watched over the course of this year again and like yeah i'm still happy to be here lots to talk about and discuss there there were moments when i was like why did i sign up for this but we'll get into that that's i think what most characters in the movie thought at some point if not the actors (laughs) that's like i was thinking about this the other day when i was preparing for this podcast that it's like it's kind of crazy that Adam Driver ended up doing Star Wars much later in the the both the production and real both the real world and the in universe timelines because it's like can you think of another example of like a hot young indie film actor shackling himself to a trilogy of Star Wars films like Adam Driver doing Star Wars it, it, is like never you know it's it's like someone like you and McGregor in like the new wave of independent British cinema shackling himself to Star Wars in the 90s. I can't see that happening. Yeah, and I mean that's the thing. You have to for like one of those roles, you have to train really hard and I just uh no. I watching these movies, I'm not spotting anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so- I didn't know that I was going to get there with spotting. I was like uh, how do I make that verb tense work? Okay. Anyway, I have for segment one titled Holidays in the Aftertimes. So the first two years that we did this, we did the Fast and Furious in year one, and we did the X-Men franchise in year two. Now, we didn't really do this segment a lot for the X-Men franchise because we recorded it over a period of time, which... You know, I'm not going to say it was a mistake, but this is something we did for The Fast and the Furious. We asked all of our guests what they were looking forward to this holiday season. And I have ironically, it turns out, titled this Holidays in the Aftertimes. Aftertimes of what? Oh boy. What you got on tap for the holidays? I have, like, I think probably most people, many people, complex feelings about this time of year. Um, I was talking about it in, in therapy a couple weeks ago, and my therapist was like, yeah, I get it. It's like, do you hate Christmas, or did you have a happy childhood? 
Um. <laughs> I love it when when our folks come on and they haven't heard the last episode of the podcast yet because it hasn't been released. And I, once again, have thought the same thing that you've thought. Are you looking forward to Christmas or do you not like your family? <laughs> I literally, and, and, and it's funny because Elise was, uh, I said to Elise twice during the episode, I think you're revealing something about your family in this one. You have a good family. You love this time of year. <laughs> yeah, and it's, and I mean, not to not to go too deep down the rabbit hole, but it's like, people will ask me, it's like, are you, are you close to your family? And I never know how to answer that question because it's like, I don't think we're especially close, but I guess like we're closer than some because we are in some form of relationship. I don't know. And then like, Francis's parents are are divorced, so it's just a lot of like logistics and running around, which like doesn't do well with me at the best of times. I I actually think the chillest Christmas I've ever had was twenty twenty. That was really nice. Wish I could do more of that. Um, I mean the yeah, I don't know. I don't just like lots of kind of socializing, and I think the the fear of or the like sense of obligation to socialize or to like you know do this that and the other thing whether it's you know oh we're raising money for this or raising money for that at work just because we as a culture frame a whole like year's worth of like you know charity work into four weeks because that's when it's expected of us right so yeah just lots of socializing there'll be some good times it's just i don't know i don't do well with the sense of obligation there's just so much pressure like for all of those things to go well and be Christmassy and perfect but when you are at home and you're not socializing with anyone are there any like traditions like movies you watch or music you listen to or anything like that so like the the biggest one would probably be and this is like again probably skipping ahead a month past the whole like Christmas thing but um New Year's Day in 2020 one of the the lo- our New Year's Day in 2012, excuse me, one of the local art house theaters did the first three Indiana Jones movies as like a kind of marathon. That's the word I'm looking for. And so that was like one of the first kind of events that like Francis and I both went to and like reconnected. So we try to like always watch it, not all three, because that gets to be a bit much, but like watch one of the Indiana Jones movies on like New Year's Day as part of, you know, that kind of chill and intentional time. So that's probably like the biggest thing. That and, you know, um, eggnog French toast on Christmas morning. That's always nice. Ooh, always oh, love man. a good food tradition. Harrison Ford and eggnog French toast. Both are very grumpy. <laughs> what? I don't know. I... <laughs> which, which which fits, the, I guess, the, my whole theme of my complex feelings about the holidays. There you go. There you mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. Sam and I are taking turns talking about things that we're looking forward to in the holidays, and we're trying to, like, dole it out a small bit at a time as we go through these episodes. And I have to say, as of right now, I'm very excited about getting the rest of my Christmas decorations up. I have about half of the house decorated because after Thanksgiving I want it to look like Christmas threw up in here and so I don't have my tree up or at least I don't have one of my trees up my big tree usually it goes behind because podcasting is a visual medium it goes behind me where I'm (laughs) sitting 
And we always put our little plushy Grogu on top of the tree ever since the Mandalorian came out. So who you can see in the in the middle distance over oh. the house currently, but he usually goes up on the tree at Christmas. So I am looking forward to getting that giant tree up with Grogu on top of it so I can have all my Christmas lights. All right. Now that we've talked about all that holiday stuff, let's talk about Star Wars. The reason <laughs> for this season. I was going to say, let's talk about Immaculate Conception. Let's get into it. <laughs> we will get there. Indeed. All right. So I have cleverly, clever to myself, not necessarily anybody else, titled Segment 2, Is This Movie Good? In which we talk about the our initial impressions of Star Wars Episode 1, The Phantom Menace. I want to begin by asking both of you, when did you first see The Phantom Menace. It was released on May 19th, 1999. Matt, when did you see it? Day and date, please. (laughs) Well, it's it's funny you said because like there there sometimes I like remember like theatrical experiences. I remember seeing the '97 like re-releases of the special editions Mm -hmm. in theaters more than I remember seeing this for the first time. I know I would have seen it in theaters again shortly after it came out but I don't remember sitting down and watching it for the first time in the theater. Tessa does remember her first I time do. seeing this movie in the theater. I have a very memorable story to tell about the first time that I saw the Phantom Menace in theater, but I do want to say first that like Star Wars was a big part of my growing up, and I was eight when this movie came out, so I was like smack dab in the target audience for this film, and I'm going to talk a lot about how I viewed it then versus how I view it now when we get into like the deep dive part of this episode but I honestly don't remember the re-releases I just know that Star Wars the original trilogy was the first live action film series that I remember watching it was like constant in my house my dad loves that that trilogy and so it was very much a part of the fabric of our cinematic experience and then of course because I was only eight I didn't fully understand I think the significance of it coming back into the theater like I did much later when The Force Awakens came out and we'll talk about that when we get to that episode but the funny story is is that I we probably saw it very close to release date I remember seeing it in the theater and it was the first movie going experience that my sister had ever had seeing a movie in the cinema like in the movie theater and she was let's see if it was 99 She was three, maybe four. No, she was three. So she was very, very young. But she was the only one who, like, we were, I I remember my parents being like, well, should we take her? Should we not take her? It's going to be really loud. And, like, I don't know if she's, like, too small to, you know, really understand what's going on or enjoy it or stay still or will she be scared? And, you know, we sat in the front row of the back section of the theater. So that way my mom could, like, take her out if, like, something happened. My sister not only loved that movie-going experience, but by the time that we got to the Duel of the Fates sequence uh, at the end of the movie, she was standing on the railing on the front on the front row of that thing, yelling, "Get him! Get him!" <laughs> like she was like totally in on this movie, and it's just a really lovely like t- story to tell. It tells you everything you need to know about my sister and the way that she experiences film. But then also it just 
we were into it. It was Star Wars. It was on the big screen. You know, we were kids. It was all all good for us the first time we saw it. Oh, to be a child <laughs> for Star Wars, as we will discuss. The only Star Wars film I haven't been alive for is the original, but I did not get to see them in the theater until 1997, which was my last semester in high school. For The Phantom Menace, I was there on the 19th of May. My story is waiting in line at a very opportune time, getting opening day tickets, picking my brother up at the bus stop from school, saying, how'd you like to go see The Phantom Menace? And he said, with what tickets? Opens up the glove compartment. You mean these tickets? I was a hero for a day for once in my life. Just the one time. So this is the third year we've done this. And Tessa picked last year, so she'll pick next year. We started with Fast and Furious, and I remember thinking, I can't imagine that we'll ever do Star Wars because it's just too... A year after that movie came out, feelings were still pretty raw in this house. Still are. Here we are talking about my favorite movie franchise. I think, Matt... You've answered the question very well in in our notes. Is this movie good? No, but I think it's better than its reputation, right? Like, I think it is more or less serviceable. I think it is less than the sum of its parts. I think there are individual parts that, like, as we're in this era of prequels reappraisals i think that there are these really good nuggets that you can if you so choose to and i mean no shade if you don't i totally get it can like grab onto and analyze and look into but as a whole like collective film as a a movie an honest to god sit in the cinema's (laughs) movie oh geez it's not it's fine at best it's fine i i think about this a lot If a movie makes over a billion dollars at the box office, can you say it's bad? Which, I mean, the answer is The Rise of Skywalker made a billion dollars. So obviously, yes. Yes, you can. But if you had asked me if this movie was good when I got out of the theater on May 19th, I'd have been like, oh, yeah, it was awesome. It was really good. I was really worried after seeing the special editions of Empire and Return of the Jedi and seeing what he did to those movies. And, um, I'm just really glad that he could make a good Star Wars. And then the second time I saw it, I would have also said yes. The third time I would have said, that's complicated. And then the fourth time I saw it in the theater, I probably would have said, oh, I don't know. This might be bad. Is it bad, Tessa? Yes, (laughs) but I agree with Matt that there are really good parts in this film and there are a lot of great ideas and I know that we're going to keep returning throughout this series to the idea that George Lucas is great at he's a great world builder he's a great creator of ideas but not the best executor of them mm-hmm. my hot take for the prequels is that they would have been better as a television series or mini series because my issue with this film actually isn't the content. I think the ideas in this film are very interesting. I think they could have been teased out more had there been more time. I think the characters 
needed to be have more invested in them. It's really the pacing of it that's the problem. Mm. Everything happens too fast. There are scenes that are unnecessary. There are scenes that are necessary that are missing. It's really the pacing. The whole middle act is an extended what? fetch quest. There it is. Which I that was great. hate in movies. I really, really hate it because it reminds me of video games. And I like my video games to be video games and my movies to be movies. But it would have made a great episode. That's what I told Sam. I was like, the pod racing sequence would have made a good episode of television and I would have been fine with it. So that is kind of my hot take for the prequels is that I actually think that if they had been a series, it would have actually been good. I think that our opinions of this content would have been much better than it is as a film. It's it's ironic that you referred to the pod racing. I'm realizing in real time right now that you have also called something else that happens in another movie a fetch quest. We'll talk about that when the time comes. <laughs> I know another thing that this movie could have done without, yes. and I know Matt agrees, it is all of the Asian, Jewish, Black, 1940s, 50s, and depending on who you are now, era caricatures. Yeah, and like it's... It's unfortunate, and this is like it. There's so much in this movie that I like, and there's so much that I don't like. So it's like, it's like the good doesn't wash out the bad, and the bad doesn't wash out the good, and you have this like enigma that is the Phantom Menace. I like that. That should be the episode title The Enigma That Is the Phantom Menace. And there's so much of this that feels very like 1990s. Like when you kind of get (laughs) and look in under the hood, but like, with the the racial racial caricatures is it's like lucas even back when he was dealing in a slightly different genre in the original star wars movies because i think the thing with the prequels it's before star wars itself becomes the genre of star wars that we know it is now right like we know that when we think of like when we go to see a star wars movie we know what we're signing up for in 99 we thought we knew what we were signing up for we weren't blah 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 blah. this is more of like an edwardian costume drama than it is a world war ii movie (laughs) but because lucas is still so heavily influenced by those kind of early mid-century serials Mm -hmm. it's like he's reaching into this like Looney Tunes character like World War Two era propaganda agiprop caricature and not even realizing it like it's subconscious and it's just in the mm-hmm. DNA of like uncritically using the racism that he was exposed to as a kid in media and then un- somewhat unawarely repeating it on screen and then not having the folks around him in his team to go have be that sober second thought and it's like can you even have someone with george lucas going back to star wars for the first time in whatever it was 20 years apparently not being that sober second thought to go hey george what about like and again we we, we don't like blockbusters by committees and like you know cooked up in a lab and like your jurassic worlds and like you know to a certain degree some of the the current star wars output where it's like drafted in a boardroom so i think going back to the prequels now there is that idea of it's <laughs> you're locked into george lucas's brain completely unedited for good bad or indifferent yeah. so like i do think there's something about that but yeah it's just i don't think it's necessarily meant maliciously i think it's just he walks ass backwards into these using these these 
tropes and these caricatures that he was exposed to and completely uncritically using them, which one could argue is, well, it's all bad and it's all equally worse. It's just a different kind of worse than, you know, overtly using them. It's funny because we're going to talk about the beginning documentary, which is about them making this film, which is very interesting. But I, I think it's a really good point that you bring up about was there no one there to tell him like this is this is a caricature like this is not great. And like looking back on that documentary, which we watched today, I think Ahmed Best might have been the only black person that I saw like involved mm-hmm. in that production and I think there was only one Asian person that I saw, like, in the crew. Mm. So I don't, I think you might be right. Everyone else was white, and it was mostly white men. So it does make sense that that group of people who are all very dedicated to George Lucas's vision, like you said, right. would not be able to recognize these things. But, you know, that's that's the thing, right? The answer to the question of was there not anybody there? No, of course, there were tons of people there. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's as you say, either people who, and I mean, I think this is not an excuse. It's a condemnation. If all the people, just because of their demographics, aren't able to even come up with like, the most surface level, hey, this might not play well. That's kind of a problem. I mean, like Rick McCallum, you know, who was probably the biggest name behind George Lucas, you know, it, you even, I mean, Spielberg shows up in the documentary. Spielberg. You know, and if anybody could tell him no, we'll mention it a little bit later, Ron Howard and Robert Zemeckis were both consulted about this movie. There's three people who could have very easily said no to George Lucas on a level of, you know, quasi-equals, if not more than in Spielberg's case. I want to show this movie to, like, early, like, late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. when Coppola and Lucas are, like, founding an American Zoetrope, like, the first go-around. And I want to know, what does that George Lucas think of this movie? <laughs> I mean, we'll never know, but like, I like, would his brain completely melt? Would be like, yes, this is exactly what I wanted my entire life. Who knows? Right. And we know he was in touch with Coppola for this too. So, but uh, speaking of things that you could see in the beginning and, you know, in the beginning, we're just scratching the surface here, folks. What is the best thing or one of the best things about the film, Matt? I mean, other than you and McGregor being very worried about being saddled with this haircut, and what if George Lucas yes. changes his mind? Yeah. <laughs> other than that, again, going back to the idea of like this movie being better than its its reputation or, or different than its reputation, a lot more of this movie is practical than I think people consider like retroactively. Right? There's a lot of practical miniatures work. They weren't relying partially probably because they hadn't invented the technology or the technology wasn't there for it yet. But a lot of what we think of when we think of the prequels in that kind of greener, like blue screen box digital sets, that's an attack of the clones, revenge of the Sith thing. There were a lot of like real physical sets, practical, real sets, practical, whatever the stupid line says that they had Mark Hamill say in the force awakens real sets, practical effects. There's a lot of that going on in this movie. And I think there's a lot of like, really impressive craft work which is one of the things that i do like appreciate about it and then i think as as we go on and they're pushing the limits of what like digital cinema can be that's where we get into more like 
I think it it holds up less and less under you know modern modern screens and modern high def. Did I did I hear you right? Did you say that craft work is in this movie? I said there's a lot of craft work. Yeah. I have to agree with you, Matt. I was, because I haven't seen this movie in a long time. Like, I've rewatched a lot of the Star Wars movies over the last few years, but this is always one that I kind of skipped because, mainly because of Jar Jar. I hate Jar Jar. We'll get into it. But I rewatched this and I was impressed at how little bad CGI there was in it. That's something that I I guess I just had retroactively lumped it in with the other two films. And so there's a couple moments where you're like, yeah, that's pretty bad. But like for the most part, I was impressed by the motion capture, which was very new technology. And it's interesting to compare what Lucas is doing here to what Peter Jackson was doing at the same time for Lord of the Rings, which comes out in 2001. So, which so very shortly afterwards. So it is interesting. But they're they're to filming see... it now, right? Like they right, exactly. So he's doing it same time, yeah. but the film itself comes out later. Yeah, I think that that's very interesting. Like I would compare what Lucas is doing with Jar Jar to what Jackson is doing with Gollum. Although I think Jackson is ultimately more successful, and that might partially be because Andy Serkis is very good in that role as well. Um, And I would also compare some of the scenes of the droids, especially in that last battle out on the plains. There's some really good shots of that, that army actually like kind of unfolding themselves. I would definitely compare that to what Jackson does in the two towers with the, the army at Helm's deep. So there's like a lot of like kind of parallels that you can draw between those two franchises. And the idea that like, this was sort of that, paradigm shift of cinematic technology right this was like definitely a couple of years where everything was leaping forward they were trying to make things that they didn't have technology for yet which honestly kind of tells me that lucas was looking for something to really i like to really capture the scenes in his head and i it's not always successful as we mentioned but i think this film actually holds up a lot better and you know we're talking a lot about effects here but I noticed something and said it to Tessa and Matt, I know you noticed it as well during the pod racing scene. I'm like, oh, what in the Ben-Hur is happening here yeah. <laughs> is what I said to Tessa. So, you know, they're doing a lot of new stuff, breaking a lot of new ground, really taking the film industry forward while at the same time looking back at older films. Matt, you are also mentioned it could be a Star Trek movie. I thought it could be yeah. a Flash Gordon movie written by Aaron Sorkin, which is just <laughs> terrifying. It's like it's like the Trial of the Chicago Seven, but like Flash Gordon is played by Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> oh, oh my god! god. I don't know if I want to. I think I might want to see that movie. Well, <laughs> anyway. is it this movie? <laughs> I mean, ironically, it might have been better if it had been written by Aaron Sorkin, but at this point. I don't know. I don't have anything to contribute. Did I just take myself in a hole on that one? Like, <laughs> I, I think the dialogue gets worse, which is interesting because that's when Lucas gets the co the co credited screenwriter. I think it's Jonathan Hale in the, in yeah. in Clones and and Revenge, right? Like, and I don't like. I think this one of the things that like I like about this movie and that I think we're like 
I can put myself in like the frame of mind to like understand it more. And again, to evoke Lord of the Rings again, although the order is like a little bit messed up in this, this, the Phantom Menace to me is the Hobbit. It's the little children's story that like Mm -hmm. precedes the grand epic. And I think if you didn't sign up for that or that's not your cuppa or whatever, I totally get it. And I think that's also probably why it can feel very skippable on a lot of people's like rewatches and like, you know, going Mm -hmm. back to it. Like I think attack of the clones is a worse movie than this, but attack of the clones feels more essential than this to like the grand story of like the Skywalker saga and everything else. I think that's a really good place to segue into our next segment, which I have also cleverly titled, but really is it good? The first big thing to talk about here is George Lucas has repeatedly said that Star Wars is for kids. And I think you're you're right on there, Matt. Is that the mistake we make when we look at The Phantom Menace? That if we're looking at it through the eyes of a quote-unquote adult, we're going to see it wrong. I just wonder, like, and I know George has said, see, we're on a first-name basis, George and I. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I. I know George has said that, like, several times and i know that it gets like taken up and like like this is yeah star wars is like one of those things where like i enjoy it but like i generally don't like to talk about with strangers anymore <laughs> for, that's for good been, reasons been, that we've been, been beaten down into. with me well a it's lot. a good thing we're not strangers <laughs> no exactly right and i know that that quote about star wars it, you know it being for kids or whatever get kind of taken off and so like you, you, there's a way in which I think certain people use that as armor or to shield themselves against good faith criticism as because there is a lot of bad faith criticism when it comes to Star Wars. And I definitely think the Phantom Menace has borne the brunt of a lot of that, as have, you know, various people that have been involved with the production. I just, just when George was making this, was that actually like his thought or is that just kind of retroactive? Yeah. When it's 1975. And they're in the deserts in Tunisia and like, you know, running out of film and like all of this other stuff. Like, is he making it for kids then? Like, or is he just making a movie? Like, it, it yeah. just, I don't know. Like, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I, and like, I think like, that's, that's how I understand this movie. And I think that's fine. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But yeah, is it's like, yeah, George makes movies for George. <laughs> Maybe it's for his inner child. Yeah, and here's the thing about that. You know, so George Lucas is only a couple of years older than my dad. And so I know, I really believe that George Lucas is making movies for kids, but kids his age, like 50s kids, not 90s kids. You know, kids who would watch Flash Gordon, kids who would think Ben Hur is a... Right. Ben-Hur is like a real wizard way to spend a Saturday afternoon, you know, stuff like that. And so, like, he's trying to graft what he knows about childhood onto what the kids today would like. And he just failed mightily, unless, of course, you're somebody like Tessa and her sister, who's dad raised them on not just the star wars trilogy but like errol flynn the stuff that 50s kids would have loved johnny quest 
Right. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I watched a lot of old television shows and serials. I had a very strange upbringing. And so, like, I can understand how that might influence the way that I watched this when I was eight years old. But I like what you say about 50s kids, too, because you have to remember American Graffiti, which is supposed to be his, like, ode to American adolescence as well. So it, it does make sense that he, as a person, is maybe stuck in a very specific time period that he thinks is adolescence. Mm-hmm. Whereas like adolescence isn't always actually determined by the trappings or the pop culture trappings of the time. And it was great in the beginning, you know, they're talking about how successful or not successful this movie might be. And Lucas specifically says, he says, I made more American graffiti and uh, I earned 10 cents from doing that. You know, sometimes movies fail and you don't know. And so, you know, going to the well for American Graffiti once was a good move for him. But somehow the cultural zeitgeist had moved on in just a few years so that when he did more American Graffiti, it flopped. It, you know, it's funny for somebody who is as cognizant of the issues at hand as George Lucas is, he's sure dumb as hell when it comes to like applying them to his own life. I and mean, that's the thing, really smart dude, really creative dude, clearly. But there's a there's an inability to really apply things. He's I think stubborn. just to execute them. Yeah. And yeah. you're absolutely right. He is very stubborn, which I think I mean, the way that that documentary begins is him basically saying auteur theory is real and I am the auteur when it comes to Star Wars. And so, you know, like that is the kind of person you are dealing Lucas, with. Though. You know, and that's the kind of person you're dealing with though when you look at these films. And so he wants it to be the way he sees it in his head. And I think that that is good in some ways and not so great in other ways. I think that's, I mean, for George Lucas, I think that's a great attitude. He should listen to himself. Yeah, he should. He should listen to his own auteur theory and know that Kasdan, Marquand, Spielberg, Howard make better George Lucas movies than George Lucas makes George Lucas movies. He had four goddamn examples of that. And chose to direct it himself. So yeah, he should have listened. He should have believed his own hype because his own hype tells him don't direct the damn movie. <laughs> that uh, that stubborn streak, though. Like again, like when you go to like the foundational text of New Hollywood, that is Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, and that kind of early seventies era Lucas. Like that's why he left the studio system. Mm-hmm. was because he was so uncompromising and you had someone like Coppola who like knew how to play that game with the studios and George mm-hmm. just wouldn't. Which I respect. I, mean, I respect I respe- that as far as I it respect goes. it, but I also feel like you have to know your limits as a pers- as a creator. And I think you need to be willing to work with other people. And it just seems to me like, especially on this movie, he had a lot of people who wanted to say yes to him and not a lot of people who are willing to like push back against him creatively, which results in some really bad shit, like the racist caricatures that we get. And also, I think some of the pacing problems that we also have in this film. Well, and like, how can you like, like say you are like the author of the work when like a lot of the production design etc etc 
you're not directly getting that. You're like, oh, it's just this thing. And Doug Chang and his team of concept artists are like, you know, presenting George with all these different sketches. And George is around like stamping what he likes and what he doesn't mm-hmm. like. Like that, that didn't come from you. Yes, you're approving it as the director. And yeah, you're, you're giving prompts. But like, you didn't design that N1 Starfighter. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? So... You put a sticky note on it and said, good job, and you get to reap all the benefits of it. Maybe that is auteur three. <laughs> well, it might be. And, you know, I think this is as good a place as any to acknowledge that Star Wars fandom, if you want to call it that, is a very divisive place. As you said, Matt, you don't like to talk about <laughs> Star Wars with strangers. So, you know, let's go ahead and, like, up the level of difficulty. Let's jump into hard mode, and let's talk about the politics of Star Wars. Yay! <laughs> Let's take two topics and put them together. So now this is me getting like worked up and like excited about it. But this this is Look, my thing with this movie and the prequels in general. Whereas it's like I never know how much of like George's politics as being like Vietnam era anti-war like lib like new left liberal. I'm reading into this and how much of it's like how much is there and how much is like intentional and how much am I like reading into it and the cigar is just the cigar because like a lot of the stuff that I like about this movie and it's like I like about the prequels and the criticism of the Jedi largely and the Republic is you do feel like this indifference of neoliberalism that is like all throughout I think the prequels and like Again, this is the one that's probably most removed from it because by the time we get to the other two, Bush has stolen an election and we've started the Forever Wars. And like George gets really pissed about that. Like Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith is a Bush movie. Like it yeah. But you'll we're talking about Phantom Menace right now, right? Well, so okay, let me ask you real quick, because because I do want to know. When and, and I think it's really helpful talking about Lucas as somebody who does situate a lot of context in the Vietnam War. When you say neoliberalism, what what is what are you what are you saying? What do you? It's a term that's used <laughs> a lot, and so I I think I'd yeah. love to know what your definition of it is. Fair enough. So basically, when I'm referring to that, I'm talking about the global shift rightward, kind of like your your post Reagan, your post Thatchers, and things like that. It's like basically the destruction of the new left, of which George would have been part of, like the mm-hmm. anti-war left in the '70s, and your kind of like reentrenchment of like your Reaganism and like your Thatcherism, which again we talked about a lot on the '90s Noir Vember. Yeah, when you're talking about why is sex in the '90s so scary. So when I'm talking about the indifference of neoliberalism, I'm talking about even like, again, in the 90s sense, you had this response from our like center left political establishments. Again, you have Blair and New Labour in the UK or, you know, the Clinton Democrats, which I think are a kinder face on Reaganomics and Thatcherism, Mm -hmm. but their policies aren't that different i think when so when i talk about the indifference of neoliberalism i mean things like don't ask don't tell and so those things and and the people who represent them that you mentioned you're in in your mind are you equating those real life people to the people in government at the end of the high republic here yes 
Okay. hundred percent. And I think that like George, and this is, again, I don't know how apocryphal this is. Newt Gunray is one of the, the racial caricatures of the pneumonians yeah. in the, in the trade federation, much like in the original trilogy with the Palpatine is Nixon thing. George has said, Oh yeah, that's, that's Newt Gingrich. Like that's, that's like the, the, person i was thinking of when it was in there again it's like you have like this is where this movie is like such a mess because you have allegedly a newt gingrich analog and a buster keaton analog in the same movie (laughs) (laughs) i okay so i definitely was not thinking about this when i watched this film or even the prequels in general when i was a child because i grew up in a very conservative household and we were not necessarily be neither neither was these things yeah so It has been really interesting revisiting these films as an adult, especially having watched everything that has happened over the last like few years, especially. And I really think you're right, Matt, about this idea of indifference and this idea of these senators or the the Senate, this, this group of people sort of being stuck in... Well, I mean, I hate to use Palpatine's term, but they're stuck in bureaucracy, right? Like this idea that like, oh, like everything has to be nice and we have to do commissions and we have to figure out what's going to happen and everything's always deadlocked and we're going to worry about the names of things instead of actually making changes and, you know, all of this stuff. And I appreciate it more now because if the original trilogy is about fascism, this is kind of about the environment in which fascism can happen, like the idea that this is this is like the perfect place for fascism to thrive is in this collective inept government that doesn't care about its people doesn't like it is very capitalist in a lot of ways too and i think that that comes up a lot in this film especially when it comes to slavery which we'll talk about later but i've always also thought it was interesting how this society seems to live in the political and technological ruins of the one before it. Like none of these wars are being fought by real soldiers. As far as we can tell from the first film, they're all being fought by droids. Um, You live in a society where factions can make war against each other and they're in the same government, supposedly, you know, you, you have this, this technology, which nobody, everybody seems to know how to fix, but not a lot of new technology seems to be being made. The buildings are all really old. I mean, and this obviously changes a little bit throughout the series when you start getting into like the Galactic Empire part of it. But like, it is very interesting to me that this is a society that's very decadent and very much used to living in peace. And so they don't have any of the safeguards that you would need in order to ward off something like fascism but they also don't they don't even know the cost of their own comfort you know like it's like they have no conception of how their lives come at the expense of other people's lives or even machine lives if we're going to talk about droids and that's why the fetch quest matters because padme's there yes and this is uh, like like Right. And like why like why I got excited originally <laughs> before I rewatched the movie to come on and talk about it and why I think this might be my favorite of the three prequels is because it's the only one where Padme is an actual character. Cause like her role gets this gets smaller as as it as it goes on. My other like again, like my confusion with what this movie is 
is it's like, is all of this stuff we're talking about there? Or is this a movie that has Jar Jar making two poop jokes once he gets to Tatooine within five minutes of each other? Like, I don't, I just, I, it, That's yeah. really what the like, 90s was. <laughs> Neoliberalism and poop jokes. And Newt Gingrich. I mean, I think you just, you did it. Good job. I love Padme in this film probably much more than I did the first times that I watched it because like you said, she has more of a character and this Padme is the one in the television series that we see later. More on that when we get to the television series. But her career as a child politician, I mean, she's supposed to be 14, ruling Mm -hmm. a planet. Um, Natalie Portman was 16 um, in this particular role. I found it fascinating that Lucas said he based her look in this film off of Princess Ozma of Oz, which is just kind of fabulous to me. I mean, she's got some really great looks in this. But the idea of like a child essentially being trained to be the leader of a planet, but she's also democratically elected to that planet leadership somehow. Um, I I think that that's really interesting because, I mean, it does sort of predict George Bush as a person, you know, being the president, being the son of a former president. But at the same time, Padme is a much more sympathetic character, and she's a character that genuinely seems to try to be doing the right thing by both her planet and in the Senate, which she realizes through the course of this film is very, very corrupt. No, it's just like, it's really interesting because you're thinking about like those Senate scenes, the Trade Federation is ostensibly like a corporation and uh-huh. they are entitled to in the Senate the same level of I political c- representation yeah. that a sovereign planet of Naboo is, right? Like, yeah. Trade Federations are people too, Matt. I had never <laughs> noticed that before today. It's like, wait a minute. This whole conflict is over taxes. Well, that If I you knew. read the scroll. But it's the representation. Yeah, it's, it's like- It's like at some point we took no taxation without representation and said, yeah, okay, let's give taxation representation. These guys represent the state of taxation. (laughs) And DC's like, that was not what we said. What did we think about the character of Padme in this? (laughs) I'm really curious to know what you all think of her as a character. I was, okay, listen, as you know, I'm I'm just a just a little bit older than Natalie Portman. Like I think of the two of us as essentially the same age, right? I was obsessed with Natalie Portman for a very long time, and I think that's why you and I get along so well. For, I, for, I am I think, also obsessed with Natalie Portman. That is it's, true. It's I was one of eight, the commonalities we share. She was sixteen, but yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, but that's the thing. It's okay, right? Anakin like, was like ten, so that's yeah. true. But yeah, you know, it's the one of the, one of the things I have in common with Anakin, I guess. Well, but, you know, there's a run of Natalie Portman's early works. You know, it's like she's a teenager. I'm a teenager. This is awesome. You know, like, this is really cool. Like, I, so I I really liked her. I was so hyped to see her in this movie because I knew who she already, I knew who she was already. But, you know, I, I was just thinking while you guys were talking about the, you know, the politics and things like that. We definitely exist in a time right now where parents are freaked out that if there's a book with gay characters in the school library, it will automatically infect their children if they come within 500 feet of that book. When I was in high school, there was the English teacher who was like the far left feminist who was trying to indoctrinate us. 
Across the hall from her, there was the basketball coach who was the rush listening guy who was trying to indoctrinate us. And I didn't like either one of them. And so it's it's really funny thinking about this as a remnant of, of 90s politics and experiencing that as somebody who was, you know, exposed to all of those key issues and having to navigate it for myself. The conclusion of which I reached was, oh, no, 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 no. Things can get real worse. Don't don't no third. Oh, you're doing a third party thing. Right. Because it was what happens in The Phantom Menace is Padme saying, I see what's happening. We really need to not do this. And I remember the next year saying, I see what's going to happen here and we really need to not do this. What did I think of Padme? See, it all comes together here because I really feel like she's that voice of sanity. She's the only voice of sanity in this movie who's looking at this stuff and going, this is, this is all bullshit. All of it. All of it. It's all bad. Nobody's making good decisions. I will not watch my people suffer and die while you discuss this in a committee. I love it. It's committee. I love it. Committee. Committee. Yeah, I just... The prequels to me are endlessly fascinating because I do think there is this, like, really interesting, like, lens in which you can view them, especially, like, the politics and, like, you know, talking about, like, you know, whether it's the end of history or not and and going through that. But then, like... Again, as we we're talking about, it's a kid only. It's a movie only fifties kids would understand. So, like, is I don't know. I just keep coming back to it. Is that stuff in there, or am I just like doing like a crack dot com bit from like two thousand and six, <laughs> where like I'm wow. adding this like this like lens of analysis in this work that like was never meant to be thought of this deeply how broken is my brain that or mm. all of our brains respectfully that like i'm talking about the indifference of neoliberalism in a children's movie i mean children's pop culture sometimes has the best critiques of of what the adults are doing so i don't know if you're entirely wrong there i will say the one thing though because i think padme does despite her insistence that what's going on is wrong she does have a sense of naivete about her for the yeah. first part of the film. And part of that, like you said, it gets stripped away by Tatooine and her realizing that there are, you know, there's slavery in the universe still. And, you know, like all of this stuff. But she also, there's this really telling scene where she's cleaning up R2 and she sees Jar Jar and she says, you're a Gungan, aren't you? And all I can think of is you're the queen of a planet and you don't know what this other species who lives on your planet looks like. That's a very Republican thing to do. Yeah. Like it's very (laughs) interesting to me, the split between the Gungans and the Naboo and the fact that, you know, Qui-Gon tells the Gungans, you know, you're part of an ecosystem. Like if they get destroyed, you're going to get destroyed, you know, that kind of thing. But it does actually kind of seem like the Naboo are, I mean, at best, they're dismissive of these creatures that live in the water, or they are at worst, like, outright racist against them. Yeah, for the record, this is this this moment that you're describing is James Cameron's inspiration for Avatar Two. <laughs> I was I'll going to make a way of I was going to make a way of water joke too. This is we need. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you beat me to it. Yeah. Quick note though, the underwater <laughs> stuff. Right. 
no notes. Like seeing that underwater city, like that was good special effects. That, okay. No notes on that. But Matt, I, I, you know, I, I take your point. Are we making up the political stuff or is it really there? But so let's instead, let's talk about something that's definitely there, which is the fact that Anakin Skywalker is space Jesus. <laughs> As you mentioned He's at the, the top, chosen one. it's the Immaculate Conception. And it doesn't really come up again much. His status as the chosen one comes up a lot in the prequels. Yeah, but you don't have to be Jesus to be the chosen Uh, one. Yeah, but it's still like a Messiah narrative, uh, albeit one that goes wrong, which is kind of fun. Which, which, by the way, as I said to Tessa earlier, technically space Jesus would still be Jesus, but (laughs) (laughs) it's okay. Anakin is definitely allegorical. I mean, George Lucas is certainly doing that. Do you agree? I mean, it... Definitely. I think for me, though, and maybe this is like a cop out, but it, it the whole like Anakin Immaculate Conception shows in one prophecy. It's kind of like that bit in A Serious Man when the one father is trying to, to bribe Michael Stuhlbarg and it's like, oh, I didn't give it to you. It's like, accept the mystery. That's mostly where I'm at when it comes to like messianic chosen one space jesus anakin i don't like i think it's more what's more interesting to me is whether or not the characters believe it and then the downstream impacts that has on you know their evolution or de-evolution like as a character but then again i also was like what 11 or 12 when i saw this for the first time and like going to a lutheran school so i'm like okay yeah jesus okay let's keep reading not not even thinking of like <laughs> what if Jesus became Darth Vader? <laughs> right? Oh but. Jesus! Oh. <laughs> you know when you just said about thinking about the impacts downstream, it makes me think of the scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. He's a king. How do you know? He's got shit on him. Uh, and then and then they argue <laughs> about divine right. You know, it just yeah. like who even like the Jedi's? You don't even go here. But that is, again, one of the things, like, speaking of the Jedi, that I do about the prequels at large, but, like, this movie as in particular is, and maybe now we can get into it, is Metachlorians. I hate Metachlorians. Uh, Metachlorians are in you. That's how that works. They are (laughs) in you. For the longest time, I also hated it because it demystified the Force, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. However... Which I, which it does, period, end of sentence, new thought. I think that is the obsession with Metachlorians is totally in line with how much the Jedi suck. And it reminds me a lot of the Magisterium in his Dark Materials as being yeah. even a more additionally evil version of the Catholic Church. And the ways in which dust, which spoilers for his Dark Materials, which is a manifestation of sin, and the ways in which... They've demystified things like this is the Jedi now. They've demystified the Force so much to themselves that they've created a science around it, and that totally misses the point. Much like like how them serving the Senate and like, oh yeah, slavery's bad. Oh that sucks. Okay, well we're over there doing our thing. I just think that that is totally in line of the Jedi hubris that leads to their downfall, and I think that that's something that Dave Filoni might agree with me on because in his 
recent Tales of the Jedi, there's a lot of those themes of that that he's exploring with that as well through those shorts. So I hate them for the reasons that you mentioned. Although <laughs> you pointing out that maybe it's a conceit that reflects something about the Jedi is interesting because the reason I also hate them is for something that Sam's about to bring up, which is <laughs> this like comparative, like I have more midichlorians than you like list that exists. And like the idea of like Anakin has the most and Yoda has like the second most. And like, I just, it's very like, like you said, it's very demystifying, but it also reduces the idea of power to like, what you're born with, I guess. And so like, it, it's just a very strange and very like nonsensical way of talking about this. I just, I think it was such a bad idea to uh, introduce this as a concept. Race science for space wizards. Yeah, exactly. Uh, hi, it's your host, Sam. And I have, I wondered to myself, I thought, have we come to a consensus on just how many midichlorians all the people in the Star Wars universe have? And because the internet exists, the answer is, of course, yes. So, just a brief digression. The average non-Force user, say your Han Solo, Owen Lars, Jango Fett, has about 1,500 midichlorians. Just for, they're just hanging out there. Now, Chewbacca, you, it's 7,200, by the way. That, that kid's strong Whoa. with the Force. But your average Jedi... Just your average, everyday Jedi. It's got about 10,000 midichlorians. That's that's really the level we're at. And you can really go up from there. You have Yaddle, as as we know, uh, a, a character who shows up in Tales of the Jedi. has got 11.3 thousand. Good for you, Bryce Dallas Howard. Mace and Darth Maul, around 12,000. Obi-Wan, 13.4. Top five midichlorian users in all of history. Tied at number four, Luke and Leia with 14,500 midichlorians. Coming in at number three, it is the little green man himself, Yoda, with 17,700 midichlorians. Coming in at number two, it is Papa Palpatine with 20,500 midichlorians. And that must mean that the man, the myth, the nine-year-old himself, Anakin Skywalker, 27,700 midichlorians. Does that matter? Does any of that matter? Absolutely not. I'm buying into this, though, Matt. I like the idea that this is space race science. <laughs> like, this is the equivalent of them measuring their heads and going, this is, this is your power level. This is how in tune you are with the Force. Man, if they were measuring people's heads, I know which one the strongest Jedi is. <laughs> 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 oh god Anakin at Skywalker the most hung Jedi around <laughs> oh Jesus again I wow but you know you know what really matters about Anakin the fact that he's a slave yeah so this is like my big pet peeve about the prequels and this goes back into I guess I should just put this out there Matt's already like hinted at it but it's gonna get talked about a lot when we talk about the prequels the Jedi suck just putting that out there this is by the way podcast within a podcast time I know we haven't done it in a while but we're doing a special event so I want to bring back the podcast within a podcast 
It is time for another episode of How Badly Do the Jedi Suck with Tessa. Hi, Tessa. (laughs) How badly do the Jedi suck? How badly do the Jedi suck? Well, first of all, for an organization that is very holier than thou and prides themselves on like being peacekeepers, which is something that comes up a lot in the series, they still somehow exist in a galaxy where there's slavery and they just don't seem to care to do anything about it. But more than that, when Anakin is freed from slavery by Qui-Gon Jinn and brought back to the Jedi Temple. And they're like, he's too old. He's already developed an attachment to his mother, who is a slave. They do nothing, nothing to go back and get her and like free her from being a slave. Even if they had this like hard and fast rule that he can't have attachments, but we're going to train him anyway, they could have at the very least like gotten his mother off of that planet, put her somewhere safe and told him your mother is safe and is no longer a slave. So that way he wouldn't have this ongoing fear and anger his whole life about the fact that they just left his mother there. And so I feel like this is really the beginning of the anger in Anakin that we see in the next two films because Jake Lloyd's Anakin is not angry. He doesn't have like that aspect of his personality, but there is this sense that what they do here is not only unethical and immoral, but it also very, very directly contributes to the emotional distress of a child and the fact that like he has gone through this traumatic experience of being in slavery and then being separated from his mother, and they're not willing to do anything to alleviate that. They're not even willing to like talk to him about it. They just say, oh, you've already developed this attachment, and that means you're going to eventually go evil, and we shouldn't train you. This has been an episode of How Badly Do the Jedi Suck? Thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> so Duel of the Fates is interesting. Because, and I can't remember if it was an interview on a podcast or something like that, but like, and I don't think Dave Filoni's the the first person to point this out, just probably the most famous and the most recent. Yeah, Duel of the Fates finishes the movie and, you know, it's one of like, you know, this this great lightsaber fight and, and everything else. It's the duel for Anakin's fate. Right. And it's it's like, when we talk about the, like, Obi-Wan Kenobi, I like. Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi rules i maybe like him a little bit less after the recent disney plus show because it was just fine didn't really do much for me but because obi-wan at this point hasn't done a lot of that soul searching of like oh the jedi suck and he's like still very much drinking the drinking the 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 kool-aid or whatever it's like I don't think Qui-Gon was in the exact same way. And I think Qui-Gon was a little like heretical. So it's like, yeah, it would have been, would have been interesting to see how Anakin could have grown up and progressed and just those little tweaks, those like slightly different circumstances. You know, I've said that before. I've often wondered how this would have turned out if Qui-Gon had survived because no one in this film besides Qui-Gon believes in Anakin and what he can do or that he can define his own path. Everyone else seems to already have like some preconceived idea of who Anakin is and what he may or not, may not be capable of. And they call him dangerous to his face. You know, like there's this idea that all of these people make it very clear to him that he's in this duel of the fates and that he has no control over what eventually happens and that he's a dangerous person. 
Whereas Qui-Gon always treats him like he has agency and like the idea that like with the right help and with the right support, he could, you know, make good choices. And I think this is a theme that's going to cause even more tension between Anakin and the Jedi in the next two films. But I do, I do often wonder if, if Qui-Gon had lived, if things would have turned out differently, because you're right, he... It even mentions in the film, like, he's gone against the council before. Like, he, you know, he basically says, like, I'm going to train him with or without you. So I do wonder that a lot, actually. I mean, uh, the way they treat this child sucks. I'm sorry. This is the (laughs) first time that we've watched the series since uh, the Clone Wars ended. Because we had that that last season pretty late in the game. And I got to tell you, I, I think the single biggest thing that has changed my opinion on this movie is something that that you said, Tessa, and I think it's going to happen with two and three as well. If you go into this movie thinking that the Jedi Council sucks, they're not good people. If you go into it thinking, and this is part of Tales of the Jedi, if you go into it thinking that Mace Windu is like the most line-towing, not Samuel L. Jackson character that you can imagine. His his lightsaber does not say badass motherfucker on it. Like, it just does not. <laughs> if you go into this movie thinking the Jedi Council are without, you know, any contradiction to change your opinion... Everything they say is wrong. If you go in thinking every single thing that, like Luke says later on, every word you said was wrong, it really changes the complexion of the movie. It it sets it up as a, I mean, the whole prequel is a tragedy, but it makes it that much more tragic because nobody was there to to look out for him. And this is something we knew but you don't really realize the scope of it if you go in with goodwill for these Jedi. You remove that, and it becomes it it gets it gets the tragedy gets heightened. I think, and it makes some better movies, frankly. Yeah, I think it does too. I think thinking about the limits and the faults of the Jedi, and that they have become this bureaucratic arm of the Senate in a way that's not healthy, and that. They're so pro-establishment that they can't critique that establishment anymore. They don't know how to process emotions correctly. They don't know how to teach people how to process emotions correctly. They're not willing to do the right thing in a lot of circumstances. I think that that really does actually kind of make these movies better because, oh boy, otherwise you have to believe that Anakin is just a bad person and bad stuff will out, right? And so it's just... It is a very interesting tension between these two things, I think, in these films. I should also say we should acknowledge that this film ruined Jake Lloyd's life. <laughs> I just want to throw that out there. I can't watch this film without like being very sad for Jake Lloyd because yeah, yeah, he got a lot of he was bullied. Like he had a lot of very toxic fandom online because toxic fandom existed back in '99. It's not a new thing. You know, I think that that's something that we should acknowledge considering the fact that all he did wrong was literally star in a movie where the director just asked him to be a cute kid. So like yeah. So I think it's time to talk about 
to move on to another character. There is a there is a joke character in this, you know, uh, in the Phantom Menace. You know, George Lucas wrote a character as an extended joke. This is a character you're supposed to get invested in, and the punchline is he dies. That's right. The joke character is Darth Maul. Darth Maul is a bit. We're supposed to be like, oh man, this is the prequel Darth Maul. Shit, he's dead. Tessa? I have lots of thoughts about Darth Maul. I'm excited to hear what Matt has to say. I will very quickly summarize this. Uh, I think Darth Maul is the coolest character in the Star Wars universe, easily in one of my top five. He only has three lines of dialogue on this film, so I'll be talking about why I think he's so good later when we talk about Attack of the Clones and Clone Wars. The duel at the end where Duel of the Fates is playing is the best live action, live action even, lightsaber battle. Benefits of having Ray Park, who is a stuntman, um, professionally play the character. And it's interesting that it then took us like, what, 20 years to finally get John Wick, like after knowing that somebody like this could actually make really great action sequences when they direct them, basically. Anyway, um, he's best known for playing oh, wait. Maul. Are you talking about the stuntman from another movie that came out in 1999? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I thought about that. That's true. Chad. So, yeah, he's best known for playing Maul and Toad in X-Men. So we talked about that last year. Snake Eyes and G.I. Joe um, and Edgar on Heroes. He's really not a great actor. I will... I love Ray Park. He's not he's not good at acting, but he is so good at body work. Like everything that he does in this film is just perfect. Like just the way he like channels that menace of Maul, that scene where he's like walking back and forth after very expertly separating Obi-Wan and Qui-Gon in that fight. So he doesn't have to fight them both at the same time, but they're behind those force fields and he's like pacing like this, like wild animal. Like, it's just like so perfect. Everything about this. And I think I just remember being in the movie theater and everyone gasping when the second lightsaber came out. Cause we didn't know lightsabers could do that. And like, you know, it just, it's just such a great character. And I do think that a lot of people were very sad that we never got to know anything about this character before he dies, question mark, at the end of the film. And so, yeah, it's interesting going back to the origin of this character, considering how much I know about him now and considering how much I love him as a chaotic villain now. So, yeah, that that's kind of my feeling about him in this. Matt, how did you feel about Darth Maul. Hey, hey, Matt, by the way, real fast. You know, if a stuntman is playing the role, playing the character, he's not going to need a body double. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, Darth Maul. Great luck. Um, canonized double bladed lightsabers, which is something that had been in the expanded universe but we hadn't hadn't seen in live action so um love that it's hard for me to think of darth maul just like in the context of like what i thought of him in like 1999 uh, like decades before the clone wars like dug up some of these themes that were like are they in this movie aren't they in this movie and the clone wars is like yeah they're there but, like, yeah, really, really cool look. And I think you're exactly bang on that they were, like, marketing-wise positioning him to be, you know, like a possible, like, Darth Vader of the prequel trilogies. Even if you look at the poster, he has the Darth Vader spot of 
you know, where you would see Darth Vader in like the original trilogy posters, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, he's, he's just cool. One of my my favorite fun facts of potential casting discussions was Benicio del Toro that was briefly considered for Darth Maul, and they just you know couldn't make it work because del Toro was a big Star Wars fan. Um, right up there with uh, Tom Hanks was once considered to be Zephyr Cochran in Star Trek First Contact, or Eddie Murphy in Star Trek Four was going to have the the Jillian Taylor role. Um, with the whales, that's you know because oh, that would have been a whole Beverly different Hills movie. Cop. Yeah, Completely well, that was half of why they went back to the eighties because like that was like right after Beverly Hills Cop, right? Like Eddie, Eddie was was on a heater. But yeah, like I think for me, Darth Maul gets more interesting later? Question mark. <laughs> but like you, you, you can't, uh, you can't argue without that he's just cool in this and he's just uh, so imposing like every time he's on screen it's like he sucks your your eye to like where he is yeah i mean he can totally do body work on me anytime (laughs) you know who isn't cool imposing or gets better throughout the trilogy question mark jar jar binks i hate jar jar matt why don't you tell us how you feel about jar jar first why do you hate jar jar (laughs) I think I'm better at like being water off a duck's back when it comes to Jar Jar. Um, when Elise was rewatching Phantom Menace the other day, they texted me with a rant about Jar Jar, and I'm like, "Okay, but what you gotta understand was it was for kids and blah 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 blah." And they're just like, "Matt, sometimes I just want to rant. I don't want to have a discussion." I'm like, "Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I just want to be heard." I get the criticisms, but again, kind of like with the Jake Lloyd thing, it's like Ahmed Best got a really shitty deal coming out of this. And like we we talk about it before about how like when we talk about this type of of motion capture performance, the two foundational pillars in Western cinema really are Andy Serkis as Gollum and Ahmed Best as Jar Jar as them being around Mm -hmm. the same time. And it's just like kind of shitty that because of you know him being jar jar being saddled with being the the comedic relief because my favorite comedic relief character in star wars is the bitter anxiety ridden queen that is c-3po but he wasn't in the (laughs) movie so so they went with goofy slash buster keaton so yeah i just think it's kind of shitty sometimes that like we as a culture erase the black man's contribution because we like yeah. the english man's contribution in like the similar field when they're their peers but yeah if jar jar doesn't work for you i totally get it well i think one of the things that always is like nails on chalkboard for me about jar jar is that he comes from there have been a lot of black critics who have talked about how he comes from like a minstrel tradition like yeah, as a character that's, fair. that's kind of part of it um, you are right, though. Ahmed Best has gotten a lot of harassment and hate from Star Wars fans. A lot of it's been racially motivated. Um, he actually came out to support Kelly Marie Tran during her experience with the same thing um, when The Last Jedi came out because he was like, yeah, it ha- like, you know, welcome to the star being a person of color in Star Wars. Like, this is like what it's like. And obviously, all of that is unearned. Ahmed Best is just doing his job here, right? Putting that aside... Like you said, George Lucas was inspired to develop him based on the character Goofy and Buster Keaton. 
I think it's funny that George Lucas believes that an essential role in any Star Wars team is to have someone who is just the most annoying person alive on the team. We already have that, as Matt said. I mean, like, come on. I just, and for me, Jar Jar is just, it's, he's too, I I hate to use this word. He's too cringe. Like every single time he's on screen, I just can't, like, it's like I can't look at him because it's just so like, I just, uh. It just ruins it ruins the mood of everything. But I did find it interesting that Michael Jackson wanted to play this role originally. Yeah, I would have had different opinions of Jar Jar. Yeah, I feel like I would have too. What's weird is is that he didn't play it because he had a disagreement with Lucas because he was like, I want to do this wearing prosthetics. And Lucas was like, I just want this to be all CGI. And I just think it's funny that half of the character is prosthetics anyway in the film. But it's just, it's funny to me that it was, we almost had Michael Jackson as Char Char Pinks, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> you know, I, I think the true tragedy of Jar Jar Binks is that there is somebody on this planet, at least, at least one person on this planet, who legitimately thinks that Jar Jar Binks is a Sith. I hate that. That's, yeah, I hate it that. is just the worst. It's, uh... Oh my god! <laughs> Although I will say my favorite joke recently about Andor, which we will cover in a future episode, is that Andor is such a great show because any of these characters could at any time feasibly meet Jar Jar Binks, but they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on. That was all one segment, kids. Segment four. Here's where we're going to talk about Tales of the Jedi, other ancillary materials, things that are kind of happening in the Star Wars universe roughly around the same time as The Phantom Menace. So I'm going to call this segment, meanwhile, somewhere that isn't Tatooine, as a reference to the fact that the Star Wars galaxy is a big, big galaxy, but every damn thing seems to happen on Tatooine. We're going to talk mostly about the Tales of the Jedi here, but really quick, I want to shout out one piece of media that was important in May of 1999, which is the novelization of The Phantom Menace written by Terry Brooks. That was kind of a big deal. And if Terry Mm -hmm. Brooks wasn't your jam, hold on. The hardcover Phantom Menace novelization had a choose-your-fighter front cover. That's right. When you bought the book, you got to choose who's on the front of it. Is it Queen Amidala, Anakin Skywalker, Obi-Wan Kenobi, or Darth Maul? Want to guess who was on the cover of my book? Amidala? That's right. I I mean, that's not surprising at all. Do you want to guess who was on the cover of my brother's book? Maul? That is correct. Yeah, that seems right. That seems right. So there, there's some really interesting things. So by the way, the novelization of the original story is how I know the Journals of the Wills exist. The Journal of the Wills exist. It's why I wrote to George Lucas, which is why we're on a first name basis. But Terry Brooks got permission to add scenes that are not in the movie. Anakin refers to a pod race, you know, before this one that he almost won. That's in the book. Uh, He has an encounter with a Tusken Raider, which sets up what will happen in a later movie. And the lead up to the Greedo fight, which Greedo's in The Phantom Menace. If you've seen the deleted scenes, you know that. According to Terry Brooks in his memoir, 
George Lucas spent an hour on the phone with him to explain to him the story of Darth Bane, who was also name-checked. Just think that's neat. I never actually read it, though. You just had the copy. I just the had collector's it. Item. Yeah, I know. I'm like, damn, I should Did you just look at the cover before you went to bed every night? Uh, it was faced out on my bookshelf. <laughs> so yeah, before I went to bed. Sure. And other times. Tales of the Jedi came out earlier this year. Dave Filoni wanted to give us, he wanted to fill in some of the gaps. So he made short animated films. Why they were short. I don't know, because all I want is more. Some of them were good. Some of them were better than good. Some of them were all right. Or I don't know, whatever, depending on what you think. There are three of these shorts that are really devoted to Qui-Gon in different situations. There is a episode called Justice, which is Qui-Gon Jinn with his master, Dooku, trying to hostage negotiate. There's an episode called Choices, that has Count Dooku investigating a crime with Narc Mace Windu. And then there is a third called The Sith Lord, which is what happens immediately after Qui-Gon's death, which introduces everybody's favorite speaks in correct syntax Yoda species, Yaddle. That was What a- did you think of these shorts, Matt? The Ahsoka the first Ahsoka one I felt was really like I get it, Dave. You love Ahsoka. Baby Ahsoka. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I did enjoy the like Qui-Gon and Dooku ones because, again, I think as we were talking about before, it, like kind of it shows how much the Jedi suck, and I think it kind of fills in some of those gaps to characters we we meet later. When which a lot of that stuff it's not that we it was new information per se um but it's interesting to see it kind of explored in this format when in it's like a lore dump or all ex- an exposition dump in attack of the clones right yeah i mean they're fun i thought the animation was nice i don't like i don't i don't have a lot like to say about them except the last ahsoka one was like it's interesting to me because it was a scene, it was a condensed version of like the uh, Ahsoka novel, the opening of which was also remixed for the final season of the Clones Wars with like the Darth. Oh, wait, Darth Maul's dead. I can't talk about that now. Um, <laughs> with some of dot, the dot, other dot. stuff that happens on, on Mandalore there and stuff. So, like, I don't know. I, I enjoyed them. They were a fun way to spend my time this week when I couldn't sleep because I was sick. <laughs> So that's also maybe clouding my analysis a little bit because I watched a lot of them at like two in the morning when I couldn't sleep. I have two reactions. One, as as Sam mentioned, Yaddle, who is amazing. And also, I knew the whole time that Yoda was trolling everyone. I just didn't realize he was also trolling them about the way he spoke. So that was really funny. I mean, Yoda is a troll. Let's just be completely honest. He has been since... His introduction in Empire, he's he's a real turd. He likes to he likes to get people he likes to poke people and get reactions from them. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. I think that the Dooku Qui-Gon stuff is really interesting because it really doubles down on these themes we were talking about in Phantom Menace, but in a way that isn't surface level. Because the thing about the Skywalker yeah. saga is that it's very much about like the center of power, right? Like Skywalker, Anakin Skywalker is not 
or right he is taken care of by an organization that has a lot of power and a lot of wealth padme despite being very empathetic and very much concerned with activism and trying to do the right thing she is also not poor right and so a lot of a lot of what the skywalker sagas talk about are these high level politics things right whereas these shorts and the stuff that Dave Filoni gets into in other series that we're going to talk about actually gives us room to look at what these problems actually look like on a ground level. So the idea of Dooku going to this planet and finding out that these people have taken a senator's son hostage because he has like stripped this planet of any kind of resource and they're all like starving and dying and in disrepair and this is like they're so desperate this was the only thing they could think of and then he loses his shit and almost force chokes the senator to death which by the way i would have been fine with because fuck landlords but like it gives a lot more background to how someone like him could potentially also be used for nefarious purposes because what we're getting here is that the Sith Lord, which is also referenced in Phantom Menace, we see him several times in his mysterious hood. One might say he's the titular Phantom Menace. He is the titular Phantom Menace. He knows how to manipulate people and he's able to say, like, this is a problem and the Jedi aren't going to do anything about it. And to be fair, the Jedi aren't doing anything about it. And so we get to see this in three different segments. And we also get to see Dooku's relationship with Qui-Gon, which is like a throwaway line in the second movie. We'll talk about that um, in our next episode. But this really gets to fill out that relationship. And you really get the sense that Qui-Gon has intervened in Dooku going off the rails before and that you know he in a lot of ways is holding Dooku back from doing what Dooku thinks needs to happen um in order to root out corruption you know this idea that like that the senate is an inherently corrupt system and i think this even these like little bitty shorts i mean you can watch them in like 45 minutes just these three episodes you know, they're, they do a lot um, to show why Dooku is the way he is. And it also go, does a lot to show where Qui-Gon as a person came from, which Qui-Gon, we haven't really talked about him a lot in this episode, which is fine. Um, he obviously doesn't survive this film. But in a lot of ways, Qui-Gon as a character overshadows the next two films uh, because of the ways in which characters try to either live up to him or don't live up to him. And in the ways in which um, he kind of comes to represent a sort of a certain type of force use that we'll get into later. I want to say real quickly that I believe the Jedi motto is we're not going to do anything about that. Dot, dot, dot. Trust us. You don't want us to. That's the only caveat there. When they do something about something, you really don't want them to. I mean, I guess that's fair. I just... I, that scene where Dooku's standing in front of the tree in mm-hmm. in that third episode and he tells Yaddle like that he blames them for Qui-Gon's death because they didn't take his report of a Sith seriously. Like it's just such a heartbreaking moment. And the fact that she tells him later that he was right. I mean, like it just like it really highlights also the ways in which the Jedi, despite being a 
a group of people who are committed to these deep spiritual practices, they're not really a community. Like nobody is helping each other or listening to each other at all. Like, I mean, if you have someone like Dooku who has all these concerns, like you should probably be listening to them and trying to figure out like, what's your point of view here? What's going on? But nobody, everybody's just like, nope, that's not how we do things. You're not going to be promoted to the council. Mace Windu is because he's an establishment person. Well, let's move on to a segment that doesn't really mean much today, but will soon. It's Max Rebo's Retcon Corner. <laughs> this is where we have an opportunity to talk about anything that has been ruined about the Star Wars trilogy. This movie does, other than all the things we've talked about, fairly little to damage the Skywalker saga. I, I can't really think of any plot point that alters how we view the original trilogy. I mean, we knew that Vader was Anakin Skywalker. Speaking of posters, does anyone remember that poster of mm-hmm. Anakin walking on the sand and his shadow is Darth Vader? Yep, I had that you on my wall. The, te- the teaser poster? Yeah, that was a it good It was such a good poster. I guess we could talk about, we'll talk about the droids in a little bit. We'll come back to them. One of the things that was changed from the theatrical release to the at-home release is the pod racing sequence was extended because we totally needed more of that. If you're watching the home video release of The Phantom Menace, which how the hell else would you be watching the movie, you are not watching Puppet Yoda. Puppet Yoda was only in theaters. He gone. I think he was on the first home release until they did Digital Yoda. Yes. No, no, no. You're right about that. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But now he's gone. Now he's erased. But this is a little known fact about George Lucas, though. If you have an older version of a Star Wars film, he will break into your house at night and take it away from you. That's why I don't (laughs) have my VHSs anymore. (laughs) He's like reverse Santa Claus. Yeah. I was, I was just going to say, I, I, the one thing that I think that's interesting about a possible retcon in Phantom Menace is R2-D2 knows a lot more than he should. I mean, we know that 3PO has had his mind wiped, but we, we think R2 never did. And if so... No, he's a withholding dickhead. Yeah. I mean, that's it. It's not a retcon if R2-D2 is a withholding dickhead. Can that we- is, you heard it here. We didn't talk about this during the, the main part of the episode, but R2-D2 is one of my favorite droids, and I love... Let's move on to segment oh, six. I see. The lighter side of the force. Heading up the lighter side of the force is our friend R2-D2. I love how R2-D2 is introduced in this film because it, he's literally just an astromech <laughs> on this ship, and... He just does a good job. And because I guess this is a meritocracy, part of he's it. part of the team. Part now. of it. He just called part of it and went with them. Yeah, like I, I kind of feel I kind of feel like that's right. I think that he just like maneuvered his way into this he like. He just group. put his wheels down and went after <laughs> Qui-Gon, and Qui-Gon was like, This could be good. This is the beginning of R2D2 competence porn, which will also be a thread throughout the whole series. R2-D2 saves every single person in this series at least once. He is amazing. I love him. And I always think that he's always cussing people out all the time. It's my, I think that that is actually what he's doing. We do get also the first interaction between him and 3PO in this. 
as well. <laughs> Which is, hey, dude, you're naked. <laughs> yeah, like, you get the sense that, like, R2 is laughing at him. Which is great. I also loved that. I actually kind of love that uh, Anakin is cold in space, and they're like, "Space is cold." Is that why they wear space capes all the time? Like, I, I didn't occur to me until I watched it this time, but I was just like, "Oh, that's why they're always bundled up in space. Like, they're wearing all these clothes. It's not just fashion. It's function." Did you have anything that you thought was funny? I have more, but I wanted to make sure it wasn't just me talking for like. 10 minutes. That doesn't stop me. I mean, I, I, I said it earlier, but I do like Komiti. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she has this weird accent that, at parts of this show or this movie. It's basically she and Kira Knightley went home one night and like decided like a voice that they could both do. And that was it. That's a fun <laughs> game that we played this time to try to figure out in which scenes the queen was being played by Natalie Portman and in which scenes by Kira Knightley, it is noticeable. If you're paying attention, yes. you can tell when it is that they switch. And and but I discovered they do look amazingly similar yeah. to each other. And I discovered today that there is an advanced version of this game. Can you, once you have successfully figured out which of the handmaidens is either Padme or uh Kira Knightley's character, which isn't hard, there are two handmaidens left. Which one is Sofia Coppola? Right, I always forget that. That blew my damn mind. Because, of course, Francis Ford Coppola, great friends with George Lucas, Sofia wants to become a film director, is about to begin her directorial debut, The Virgin Suicides, and decides the best way she can learn about directing is to shadow George Lucas. (laughs) <laughs> that is that is indeed the best, so the she, best way. So she plays it. She also plays a handmaiden in the film. I just you can't make these things up. Did Marty say no? <laughs> I, I oh guess. my god! She wanted to be in gangs in New York first, and Marty was like, "No, no." I do want to tease uh, an episode of Monkey next month. We are going to also be talking about another film appearance a film acting appearance of Sofia Coppola. That's right. I'm talking about The Godfather Part 3. Stay tuned. Exciting stuff. I also will say the funniest part of the beginning, the documentary on the making of The Phantom Menace, is the beginning where George Lucas compared <laughs> writing a, compared writing and making a film to a marriage and then immediately afterwards said, you know, it has to last like four or five years, <laughs> which uh, is very funny. And also very sad because of things we're going to get into when we get to the original trilogy. So, yeah. According to George Lucas, marriage successful marriages only have to last four or five years. I also compared Anakin several times in this film to Sam because Anakin pulls what I have been told by many people, including Sam and Sam's mother, is a classic Sam move of, well, you told me to stay in the cockpit. What were you expecting me to do? Sam, I mean, would you like you to explain sh- how this should have is been similar more sp- they to said, your childhood? Listen, they stayed. They said stay in the cockpit. If they wanted him to not move the ship, they should have said so. Because, of course, yes, I am the kid who had to sit in the timeout chair. And at least some part of my butt stayed in that timeout chair. <laughs> Once again, oh my goodness. make the rules, 
make them make sense, make them fair, and maybe, just maybe, I'll follow them. Which I believe is also Anakin Skywalker Jedi Knight's approach to rules. I respect it. I, I will say this is a question to consider over the next couple of movies is, does Anakin emotionally ever progress past this stage of childhood? Like, it really feels like in some ways he gets stuck here emotionally. I'd be fascinated to know what you all think of that as we watch the next couple of films. The other thing I will say is that this kid has game. Like, the first thing he says to Padme <laughs> is, are you an angel? Damn, like, seriously. Are you an angel? Oh, my oh God. Oh, my God. Like, and I think part of it is, is that Padme is, like, the first person besides Qui-Gon and his mom to, like, be, like, actually take an interest in his life, which, I mean, I get it. Like, I get it. So, it, it does make sense to me, I guess. I but. mean, if you think about it, though, I mean. I wish I, I had that game well, at nine years old. Yeah, I, well, I take I take your point that this could be some sort of, like. Uh, attachment, transference, combo here. And that's fine. She is the hottest person in the entire galaxy. Oh, yeah, no, th- I'm not so, saying anything about her attractiveness. That is I'm a just real saying like, he like there. imprints on her, like a little duckling. Well, this- right. I, I'm just movie. saying that, you know. Yeah. And then finally, the scene that I laughed at the most, because again, I'm watching this with the knowledge of other things that will happen later. The scene where the doors open and reveal Darth Maul at the end, right before the lightsaber fight, that bitch lives for the drama. Like that guy was waiting back there behind those doors until they ran up so he could open them dramatically and just be waiting there. And my favorite part is that Padme just nopes out. She's like, we'll we'll take another way. We'll just... This is your thing. I'm not going to be part of it. And then as she's running away, we get this shot of everyone, Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and Darth Maul removing their outerwear before they fight. And it's just the whole sequence is great. Like, Darth Maul is a messy bitch. I love him. It starts here. It starts in this moment. <laughs> Good times. I also want to point out, and and I can't, I I hate following that, but... I remember being in the theater the first time during the Senate scenes and being like, it's Wookiees! It's Wookiees! Wookiees in the Senate! And then I was like, God damn, E.T. and his friends are also in the Senate. <laughs> those those guys, those little E.T. guys, they're called, and I'm going to, you know, I don't know which one it is. It's either Asogians or Asogians. Probably Asogians. But uh, they're an actual species and they exist because George Lucas supposedly promised Steven Spielberg that if a Star Wars toy was put in E.T. product placement, one day he would return the favor. Huh. I did not know that. I didn't either. Supposedly it's true. There's a very important question I have to ask you, though, Matt, because this has mm-hmm. been a subject of debate between me and several friends, although I think we're more in concurrence now than we used to be. Does Qui-Gon Jinn... Bang Anakin's mom. Uh, I mean, probably. It's really important. Like, I think they're just very touchy-feely. And there's this moment where he's helping her down off of the camel alien thing. And he's like, good morning. And he says it in a very strange way. Like, they got chemistry. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Which is interesting because isn't isn't Prunella August, like, not speak English and basically, like had to like phonetically deliver the lines. Oh, I, I didn't did not know that. know that. 
I I think so. Like, don't I'm like sixty six percent sure that that was the case. Because I I went on a, I went down uh, like a Wikipedia rabbit hole a while back on Pranilla August because she's also in some nativity or some Jesus movie where Christian Bale plays Jesus and she plays Mary so she gets to play the mother of Jesus twice. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, speaking of which, are you basically saying that Qui Gon's Joseph? I mean, maybe I don't know. Oh. I'm just saying they have chemistry. That's okay. all I'm saying. Huh? On that note, Matt. Two final questions. Mm-hmm. What final thoughts? The Phantom Menace. You said it was not a good movie earlier. We we've talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. At the end of the day, how do you feel about this movie? I think at the end of the day, I will remain a <laughs> with massive caveats of which we discussed earlier in the mm-hmm. the first couple segments of this podcast. A bit of a light phantom menace apologist but i don't think i did myself any favors this time in that mission to be a like slight phantom menace apologist by watching it like within weeks of watching the end of andor um (laughs) which is very much not for children and you know and all of that all of that stuff yeah right so like that kind of like probably bumped it down but yeah it was the the hardest rating on letterboxd that i hardest time rating something on letterboxd that i had for for a long time because i think i landed on two and a half stars but i was like is it a three is it a two and a half because like three for me and my rating system is like you can be a good three you can be a bad three but three is like a comp you're a competent mm-hmm. movie yep right and like i don't i don't think it's that all the time so that's where I, like i landed on it but yeah like it's not greater than the sum of its parts, but I do like some of the parts. Mine's also a three on Letterboxd, actually. I don't think I'm as I don't think I'm as objective in my ratings on Letterboxd because I liked this movie better than I thought I was going to on this rewatch, and so that's why I think I gave it the three. But yeah, no, it's not a good movie. I mean, like I, I've you know we I've talked a little bit about why I don't think it's a good movie, but like it's still a really fun watch i mean much more fun than i thought it was going to be and i was surprised at how well it introduces some of the themes that we're gonna see later my mind has been changed a little bit about this movie today i don't know if i put it at matt's two and a half or tessa's three i'll have to think about it final question matt do you have some sort of skywalker Saga ranking. Top three favorite, all nine, whatever. Yeah, I don't. So I I try to avoid answering this question because it stresses me out. Um, That could be an answer. No. That could be fine. (laughs) I think think you have like a new hope and empire as like a tier on themselves. Mm -hmm. I think. I don't know. I, I, I more rank it like in terms of like the three Skywalker like trilogies. So it's oh, like, that's a great rank. I like, I like all of the original trilogy. I think mm-hmm. Jedi is the weaker of the three. I probably like revenge of the Sith that half star full star more than this. Although mm-hmm. I think I enjoy this more. Cause I think some of the pacing stuff that we talked about here, I think is also an issue in um, revenge of the Sith. Um, I don't really like Attack of the Clones. Sorry, Elise. 
And yeah, like Lost Jedi for me is like heads and tails above the other two. I think Force Awakens I used to like a little bit more. I think it has a little bit of law of diminishing returns. And I don't know if I'll ever watch Rise of Skywalker again. I might have to for because I started using Letterboxd after. Um, <laughs> you know, got to get that Letterboxd at some point. Game. But yeah, right. But should we do a thirst quencher? Yeah, you know, I heard about this little thing y'all do on <laughs> on the pod race. Take it away, Tessa. Oh, well, we just had this conversation about who was the most attractive person in the Star Wars universe. That's where this conversation started. But I think that we could have our own, like, thirst quencher segment, although that's a Star Trek reference, on... Uh, in this about this film, so well, I mean, your co-host will be on tomorrow, so it may not last yeah. all eleven days, but it's gonna be a two-dayer for yeah, sure. Yeah, so who do we feel like is uh, who are we especially thirsty for in this film? Watto. <laughs> it's the wings, isn't it? Oh man, yeah, <laughs> thing has wings. <laughs> No, if if we're like putting myself in like, you know, 1999 like headspace, like I'd seen Natalie Portman and things before. I think probably Mars Attacks was like the first thing I saw her in, which was a couple years before this. But like this is again not to be like Sam and I are incredibly similar again. Um but yeah, this is the start of my like lifelong crush on Natalie Portman that has just like it's it's still here. She's still working. She's still great. Sam. Yeah. Same. Yeah. You've got like a huge smile on your face. Yeah. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I also am in love with Natalie Portman and was from the age. This was the first thing I had ever seen her in, actually, because I was too young to have seen her in anything else. So, you know, this was this was you're, you're watching Leon the Professional no. in like preschool. Interesting. I, <laughs> Come no, on, I, Tessa. <laughs> Jesus. So obviously, like, she's going to be, like, in my top. But I do have to say, as we pointed out earlier, Ray Park's Darth Maul also can get it in this movie. The Padawan haircut isn't doing young you. Nope. No, he's really no. not. He looks much better in yeah. the next movie. So, well, we, we will compare. We will have a comparison between the two. There's a there's a scene in the documentary where they buzz his hair. And I'm like, no. Yeah. <laughs> Gonna miss so, spotting that I, long hair while he's training for this role. Can I don't remember if the <laughs> the doc gets into this. It's been a while since I've seen it. But like as we close, can I hit you with like one last like fun fact about like the production of this movie in the early stages? Of Bring course. it on. It's in it's interesting that like we talk about how important Qui-Gon is when he wasn't in the early drafts, it was just Obi-Wan Kenobi and they expanded that. But when they were casting who they were looking for for Obi-Wan Kenobi, they were looking for, quote, a Kenneth Branagh type. Gross. Yikes. Which, again, looking in the 90s and you think of, like, who could be, like, a young Alec Guinness and that energy. Yeah. You can see where, like, they probably never talked to Kenneth Branagh, which, good. I mean, I like Kenneth Branagh, but I don't think he'd be good in this. You um, but you can see how that would be on a casting director's, like, mm-hmm. list or notes or, like, you know, in the brief somewhere. What was interesting, I don't know if they talk about that in the doc, but it was interesting to see them comparing headshots of potential Anakin actors against Luke, like against pictures of Mark Hamill, 
which I thought was very interesting as well. Casting is casting these films is so fascinating. Speaking of fascinating, tomorrow we'll be talking about episode two, Attack of the Clones. So Matt is our phantom Matt is our the Phantom Menace apologist, and Elise is our Attack of the Clones <laughs> apologist. Where can folks find you online, Matt? Yeah, you, you can find me, I think. Depending on when this this you know airs and whatever happens with Elon Musk on any given day, I still have a Twitter account. Not actively using it, but I try to put some like promotional stuff up on there. Things I'm doing when I remember. So you can follow me on Twitter at at Mattyhugh M A T T Y H U G H. You can also follow me at Mattyhugh on Letterboxd as well. And you can also check out my Star Trek Deep Space Nine podcast. Pod Wraiths, P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S. And of course, this tomorrow will mark the third episode in a row that that uh, you will hear mention of Pod Wraiths. So hopefully, if you're not listening to it yet, the repetition will get you. It's that Speaking, subliminal messaging. Right. Speaking of repetition, Tessa, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter, if it is still standing, and Storygraph and Letterboxd at The By Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. When this comes out, I believe we have just released the Thief of Time episode. So if you're a fan of Terry Pratchett or of books in general, go check that out. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Melody Valentine. You can also find more from Tessa and myself on moviejohn.com. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog, email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back. May the force be with you and enjoy the holidays.